Socrates once said, The gods may forgive sin, but I don't see how. The most profound of the pagans had great difficulty in understanding forgiveness, grace. But in the fullness of time, there was a brilliance that blazed through the blackness of the ancient world with a message that shook that world. And at the heart of the message was the truth, God, through Christ, forgives. God, through Christ, forgives. The pagans, well represented by Socrates, said, I don't see how the gods can forgive sin. But the God does forgive through Jesus Christ, and that really is the heart of the gospel message. Imagine a courtroom scene. The accused, the defendant, has heard all the charges. The time finally comes for a verdict to be given. And there's a sigh of relief, and perhaps a cry erupts in the courtroom. Not guilty. The God of heaven renders a most paradoxical, seemingly contradictory, and certainly most dramatic verdict. But innocent. Guilty but innocent. Romans chapter 8 at verse 1, There is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ. No condemnation. We've all sinned. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. But God provides forgiveness. God offers grace. And the minds of the ancients and the modern mentality has difficulty in understanding grace. We can understand how we might earn something and how we might purchase something and how we might procure something and how we might do something or give something, value rendered or service rendered. But we have a hard time understanding grace. When it comes to being right with God, we feel a little bit like when we go into our banker for a loan. We've got to prove that we don't need the loan before we're qualified to get it. And if we can prove we don't need it, then maybe He'll give us the loan. And I think some of us almost feel like that's the situation that we're in with our God. I want to talk to you for a little while about grace. The definition of it, the dynamics of it, the demands of it. The word for grace in the New Testament translates our English Bibles, have the English word grace, which translates the word chiris, C-H-A-R-I-S. It's from the same family of words from which you have charisma, meaning a gift, that which is graciously given. The word for joy, chira, is from the same root. Rejoice is from the same root. In the classical Greek, the kind of Greek that lies back of and came earlier than the common Greek of the New Testament, the word chiris meant that which is lovely, that which is beautiful, that which is winsome. And that particular meaning is never completely lost in the New Testament. And yet at the same time, the word grace in the New Testament carries a connotation that it never carried before the New Testament writings. It is still that which is beautiful and that which is gracious and that which is lovely. But in the New Testament, this great word has to do with God's eager love. 
reaching out through Christ to give what cannot be deserved, what is not merited, and what cannot be merited. The late G.C. Brewer said, grace is an undeserved bestowal. It may be accepted or rejected, but it cannot be reciprocated. It cannot be returned. It cannot be reciprocated. It is an undeserved bestowal. You've seen the acrostic. Imagine an imaginary board here. And suppose we write G-R-A-C-E, the word grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a pretty good way to put it. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have our redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God reaching out to give that that cannot be deserved, that cannot be merited. And we struggle with that. The Judaizers in Paul's day had a struggle with that. They were convinced that this is going to be morally weak. That if we're saved by grace and where grace where sin abounded, grace did more exceedingly abound in the language of Romans 5.20, then let's just keep sinning that grace may abound. This kind of system will not work. The truth about the matter is that it is the grace of God that produces the greatest purity of life, the greatest nobility of purpose, and the greatest spirit of sacrifice. And that life that is truly gripped by grace is given to God. The late R.C. Bell used to say, if you'll get Romans... God will get you. That was His way of saying, if you come really to understand His grace, then you simply lay your life upon the altar. And then we're done with the old legalistic attitude that looks for bare, irreducible, minimum legal requirements. Hey, I've learned something about students in school. I know about it. I've been on the other side of that desk. I've been out there taking the assignments as well as giving them. I know how we think in a situation like that. If a teacher says you've got to write a paper... Hands go up. First question, how long does it have to be? And boy, if you say six pages, they're not going to write it seven. Academic Pharisees, I understand that. I understand that in an academic situation. You know, what's the deadline? Most of them won't get it in till just about that time, and some of them will come and say, hey, I haven't got it typed yet. Can I stick it under your door? Academic Pharisees, I understand all that. What I don't understand, is the person saved by grace, unmerited favor, who goes through life's little day asking, where does it say I've got to do this? Where does it say I've got to go on Sunday night, Wednesday night? Where does it say I've got to give so much? There's something fundamentally wrong with the attitude. There's something fundamentally wrong with the question. And what we need is hearts touched by grace, realizing that we have no other hope. Well, let me ask you a question. Who upon these pages writes more about grace than anyone else? Various forms of the word kairos appear about 170 or 171 times in the New Testament. And you already know the answer to the question. Paul writes more about that than anyone else. Far and away, it's not even close. Now let me ask you another question. Who labored more abundantly than they all? Who could say in 2 Corinthians 11, in stripes above measure, in labors more abundant? Who could say in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10, I am what I am by the grace of God, and that grace was not bestowed on me in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Let me tell you what will cause people to labor. It is not a slavish, grudging compliance 
with an impersonal legal system. But it is that loving response to God's great gift and grace. What He really wants is you and your heart given. And if you ever get a hold of His grace, then He has you. And that's what it's all about. Grace defined unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. That that cannot be merited or deserved. God giving through Christ and the cross what the sinner could never earn. You and I have an unpayable debt. And we sing a great truth when we sing. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite know? These for sin cannot atone, thou must save, and thou alone. Friend, it's not a matter of teaching so many people, praying so many prayers, attending so many services. The grace-motivated heart will be there, but it's not a matter of building up merit through some kind of human achievement. It's not by achieving, but by obediently believing that God saves us by His grace. It's not by human attainment, but by atonement. We've done a little defining of grace, unmerited favor, that which is lovely, winsome, beautiful. And in New Testament usage, God's eager love, reaching out to give through Christ what cannot be earned or merited. Let's talk a little bit about the dynamics of grace. Let's take a look at human need. Human need. Seneca was an old Stoic moralist. He was the brother of the Gallio before whom Paul appears in Acts 18. And Seneca decried the decline of morals. He says, we are evil, have been, will be. The form of the vice may change, but it continues in every age. And we will keep on like this to the end of the chapter. And old Seneca said, what we need is a hand let down to lift us up. That may be a fairly realistic appraisal of the human situation. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Some of us don't know the next verse, Romans 3.24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. There's the problem and there's the answer. There's the problem and there's the panacea. The problem is we've all sinned and because of that we'll never be saved on human merit. You can understand that when you look at civil law. Here's a guy guilty of murder. Crime goes undetected. He goes unapprehended for one decade, two, three, thirty years. And let's suppose that for thirty years after that murder, he keeps civil law perfectly. I mean, he doesn't run a stop sign. Now, will all that perfect law-keeping militate against the guilt of the crime committed three decades earlier? You know the answer. When you do right today, you do no more than what you ought to do. And that does not at all remove the guilt of a previous wrong. That's true in the civil court. The guy that comes in before a civil court has two possibilities for acquittal. If he has not broken the law, he can be justified on the basis of the law. If he has broken the law, then he just hopes for clemency. For a kind of clemency and mercy and grace that goes beyond the law, but law itself really doesn't make provision for that. And as we stand before God, there are two possibilities, law and grace. The law came by Moses and grace and truth by Jesus Christ. Grace is our only hope. You know what we ought to do? We ought to tell sinners what God has done before we tell them what they are to do. Where does the preaching of the gospel start? Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's part of it. Acts 2.37. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30. That's part of it. But we don't start there. 
Don't start by telling sinners what they're to do. Start by telling them what God has done. The gospel begins with done and not do. What's God done? He's given His Son. God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. What the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so let's hold up God's grace. But we're looking at human need. And we've already seen by looking at civil law that we're going to have to have more than just law. There must be grace. Because any infraction under a purely legal system brings the force of that system down to bear on the offender. And days and weeks and months and even years of perfect law-keeping will not nullify or militate against the guilt of a previous wrong. And so we have to have grace. Again, not the labor of my hands, we sing in the great song, Rock of Ages. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no rest but know these for sin cannot atone? Thou must save and thou alone. There was a time when there was a high degree of optimism, and religious modernists said what's really needed is not redemption from sin but simply an emphasis on the perfectibility of man. But there came World War I and World War II. And the difficulties of recent decades and countless examples of man's inhumanity to man and the rosy optimism of religious liberalism was seriously rebuffed and it became apparent man has a basic fundamental problem, the sin problem. The secular humanist of our day are very much convinced that man is his own Savior. There is no need for blood. There is no need for divine grace at all. But I want to tell you something, friend. That is our greatest need. And you don't have a shred, a shadow, a semblance of hope before the sin-hating and immaculate I am, apart from His grace, apart from His great gift, apart from the Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. That's the great truth in that great song, Rock of Ages, that's taught throughout the Word. Human need. Listen to the book. Sin is the transgression of the law. Lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Some wrongs are greater, some matters are weightier, but as we've affirmed many times, there are no little sins because there's no little God to sin against and sins against God. Any sin, every sin, all sin. And Bible writers do not simply see sin as isolated and unrelated acts, but as a state in which men live and all have sinned. It doesn't take a Solomon to see the bootstrap method is not going to work. We can't grab ourselves by our spiritual bootstraps and lift ourselves up and saunter into His presence and say like the Pharisee of Luke 18, I fast twice in a week and I give a tithe of all I possess. Isn't that ridiculous? How would you like to be ushered into the presence of the great I Am and start out on a little speech like that? When if the truth were known, this one apart from Christ stands, uncleansed, doomed, damned, hopeless, helpless, hapless, crime-covered, sin-stained, and that's the condition of all of us without Christ. Human need. Let's think about the ground of grace. Grace is rooted in God Himself and His very nature. And the meritorious ground of our justification is God's great gift, Christ, and the cross of Christ. The initiative is with God, and the underlying principle in human redemption is God's grace. That's the ground of grace. 
Grace is not bestowed because there is something in us that calls it forth. With regard to God's great choice in the Old Testament, some have said, how odd that God should choose the Jews. Well, God explains very clearly, particularly in Deuteronomy, it was not because they were so great or so large or so strong or so good. It was God's love that was back of that. And thus God chose on the basis of great unmerited love. And in our case, that's our only hope. And we don't stand before Him on the basis of human attainment, but on the basis of divine atonement. There's the answer. The ground of grace is God. I want you to look with me at one of the greatest grace passages in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 4, go through about verse 10. To appreciate that, you've got to remember that before this, Paul said you were dead in trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, and you were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. He's painted a dark picture of a devil-dominated world and of people who are dead in sin. And Paul said that was your condition. What changed it? Did man suddenly wake up and say, there's a chasm between me and God and somehow or another I've got to get that thing bridged and so I'm going to come up with a remedial system that will solve the problem? No, that's not it. Ephesians 2, 4, but God. There's the ground of grace. It's grounded in God, His nature, His love. But God being rich in mercy. For His great love wherewith He loved us, even with Christ. For by grace are you saved. And raised us up and made us to sit together with Him in the heavenly places, that in the ages to come He should show the exceeding riches of His grace in kindness toward us. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, that no man should glory. For we're His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works, which God afore prepared, afore before or ordained, that we should walk in them. Notice verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. The initiative is with God, and the underlying principle in human redemption is God's grace. Don't ever forget it. If anyone is ever saved, it'll be saved by grace. It'll be salvation by grace. And there will be those saved, and they'll be saved by grace. Titus chapter 3. We ourselves at three and three in Titus, we ourselves were deceived, disobedient, serving divers' lust and pleasure, living in envy and malice, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God toward man appeared, not in works done in righteousness which we did ourselves, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy. Titus 3, 4, but when the kindness and love of God toward man appeared, the ground of grace is God Himself. And God, 1 John 4, 8, is love, and He chooses to love and through Christ give what can never be deserved. What's caused a lot of the frustration, the feelings of futility, the dark despair, sometimes the falling by the wayside, or these people who do that, characterized by some basic perversity? No, I think in many cases they're discouraged. They feel like there's really no hope. I don't believe I'll be able to make it. Now, man's will is free, and you have a choice to make. And while it's salvation by grace, it's not grace only. But I want us all today to thrill to the fact you can be saved because God is a God of grace. He is a gracious God, and He's called us 
to graceful and graceful, uh, gracious living, in which motivated by love, we serve. And we serve gratefully and we serve graciously. You can be saved. And all of that's grounded in the very nature of God. Let's look at the greatness of grace, what it can do. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, who was before, a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceeding abundant in faith and love. This is a true saying, and worthy of all acceptation. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me as chief he should show forth all longsuffering. For a pattern, for an example unto them that should hereafter believe on Him unto life everlasting. Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. The protos, his language is literally saying the first of sinners. First, not chronologically, but in the sense of the chiefest of sinners. A blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious. But that life was changed. And that guilt was obliterated. And the price was paid. And the scourge of the church becomes, Paul, the surge of the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. At verse uh, 9 and verses following through about 11. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusing themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. The sexually immoral, those who had been guilty of a perverted course of action, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, thieves, idolaters, such were some of you. But you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The greatness of the grace grounded in our God is such that it can cleanse the leper spots and melt the heart of stone and change the life of a persecutor into a preacher and change that motley mob in Corinth who had lived grossly immoral lives into the saints of God at Corinth, the church of God at Corinth. The very first members of the church were the murderers of the Christ. And in the crescendo of the Acts 2 preaching, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly God has made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. And pricked in their hearts, they cried, What shall we do? Peter said, Repent ye, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, unto for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three thousand received the Word and were baptized. Acts 2.41 were added to them, or added to the church. 2.47 Who are being added here? The murderers of the Christ. Oh, the marvel of His mercy. Oh, the greatness of His grace. He could take apparent human dregs of uh, human driftwood in Corinth and from that fashion the church of God which be in Corinth through the cross of Christ by His grace. He could take a ruthless, merciless persecutor who was injurious. The ugly Greek word eubristes, meaning heavy-handed violence. He lived that kind of life and he could be forgiven and the life changed. And the very first members of the church are the murderers of the Christ. We begin to see something of the power of grace to change our lives. And even after we've been forgiven the power of grace, Paul writes, I bear record to, King James says, I do you to wit, I bear witness to, the grace of God upon the churches of Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 8. Poor people, afflicted people, abounding to the riches of their liberality. What is this in a word? God's grace bestowed upon the church of Macedonia. Paul talks about his ministry to the Gentiles. Unto me, whom less than the least of all saints, was this grace given to make known unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to preach uh, the, the mystery to all men. Ephesians chapter 3, 7 and 8. 
And so grace has purging power for the past, and grace is an enabling dynamic in the present. Let's talk a little bit about the goal of grace. The ground of grace rooted in God and His nature and His love and expressed in the cross of Christ, the ultimate expression of God's grace. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 1, 7, the greatness of grace. We've seen how it changed lives in the first century. And people were forgiven, didn't earn it, didn't merit it. God gave it on the condition of their obedient trust. The goal of grace. The goal of grace, of course, is that we might grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13, and here's the ultimate goal in a passage we've already looked at. That in the ages to come, He should show the exceeding riches of His grace in kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. God wants to save. He would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4, And in the ages to come He will show the exceeding riches of His grace in kindness toward us. We've talked a little bit about the definition of grace and dynamics of grace, but let me say something about the demands of grace. I think the Judaizer in the first century had an honest fear. He was very mistaken. He became an enemy of the cross. His error was a fatal error, but I think he had an honest fear. I think that false teacher in the early early church, the Judaizer who would bind the old law, the Mosaic system upon Christians, really felt that the gospel of grace would be morally weak, would lack the basis for moral incentive and moral effort. Listen to Paul. Romans 6 at verse 1. That chapter that follows the chapter in which he said, where sin abounded, grace did more exceedingly abound. And Paul knows what his opponents will do with that. And so he takes up their objection. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! Strong expression in the language of the New Testament. Meganoito, may it not be so. No, God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not, are ye ignorant, that so many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we're buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so ye also should walk in newness of life. We're saved by grace, but it's not cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German writer of years past, decried what he called cheap grace as he looked at a decadent state religion in Germany. The Bible doesn't teach cheap grace. On the divine side, the giving of grace necessitated the great gift of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross. Brother, that's not cheap. And on the human side, we die in our reception to this grace. There is a death to sin that takes place. And because of that, we do not continue thereafter to willfully, impenitently walk in a life of sin. And so let me tell you something. Grace, rightly understood, is the great incentive to purity, is the great incentive to sacrifice, is the great incentive to nobility of purpose. And one of the most urgent needs in the church today is to see that we're saved by grace, that we need to preach and sing and live and then allow it to change our lives and with Paul, labor abundantly, not out of a grudging, galling sense of duty, but out of a grateful response to the great grace of our God. It takes two to perfect a gift. Have you ever known people who couldn't accept a gift very well? They were just pretty self-sufficient or something, and for various reasons couldn't... It takes two to perfect a gift. There must be the giver, there must be the recipient. And some, somehow we need to learn to gratefully receive the gift 
to die the death that is necessary to the reception of the gift and then glory in that grace that saves us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and following. John just told Christians how to continue to be cleansed. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, the blood cleanseth us, keeps on cleansing from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. 1 John 1, 9. Somebody might say, hey, He's made such marvelous provision for our continued cleansing. Let's just keep on sinning. John takes that up. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. That you sin not. But if any man sin, what about it? Is my condition hopeless? Am I in such a legal relationship that any miscue on my part puts me in a hopeless situation with the whole system and its force pressing down upon me? No. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let me tell you something. Pure legalism tends to produce either pride or despair. I fast twice in a week. I give a tithe of all I possess. There's human pride. Or despair. How can I ever make it? And this perfectly balanced system, the gospel of God's grace, counteracts that by teaching us that in dying to sin, we're not to live any longer therein. So it's not a cheap grace. But on the other side, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And God's child in His human imperfections can continue to hopefully struggle knowing that all along the way He is saved by grace. And He doesn't just continue impenitently walking in sin, but He doesn't despair because He doesn't live in sinless perfection, because He has an advocate. And He is the continued recipient of grace. God is the God of all grace. His throne is the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 His gospel is the gospel of grace. Acts 20.24 I commend you to God in the word of His grace. Acts 20.32 That's the whole system. We haven't preached it. We haven't taught it as we should. One writer put it like this. I will not work my soul to save. For that my Lord hath done, but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. The gospel begins with something that's been done. He died for our sins, was buried and raised according to the Scripture. And here God's grace is expressed. We lay hold upon that saving work of Christ by our faith, obedient trust, the faith that works by love. But in a very real sense, it's what He has done that saves us from past sin, and we appropriate that in the faith that works by love. I will not work my soul to slave for that my Lord hath done, but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. John Newton, as I'm sure most all of you know, spent his early life as a reckless sea captain. He lived an abandoned, wicked life. And then late in his life, this preacher poet, who had radically changed, entered his pulpit wearing his old sea captain's uniform and reading the words which he himself had written. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. James chapter 4, verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, at about verse 5 and following, quoting a Proverbs 3 passage, God resisteth the proud. The word for resisteth is a kind of military term. God sets Himself in battle array against the proud. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace 
to the humble. Unmerited favor to the humble. The one who is self-sufficient and proud and will not bend his will cannot know that grace. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Grace can be yours. Not by coming before Him and saying, I fast twice in the week and I give a tithe of all I possess. But grace can be yours by within your heart of hearts crying out, Have mercy on me, a sinner. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And those who humbly depend upon that grace can go through life singing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you've not been saved by His grace, Paul said, we're saved by grace, that's God's part. Through faith, that's man's part. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Your faith needs to express itself in penitence, confessing His Lordship, a burial in a liquid grave in which, my friend, in reality, you're passive. And the real work that's done there is done by God, buried with Him in baptism, wherein we're also risen with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Even in our obedience to the gospel, we're very much saved by grace. Grace through faith. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Grace can be yours today. Won't you come to Him now while we stand and sing?